it's good to see you tonight. As we get started, two things real quickly. One, just want to remind you about deacon nomination process. We're receiving deacon nominations through this coming Sunday. Sunday is the final deadline for deacon nominations. So if you've not picked up a form yet, they're available in the table in the hallway and the drop box for completed nomination forms is out there. I just encourage you to give prayerful attention to that and places in the box tonight or Sunday as well. Second of all, I just want to say thanks to Greg for teaching last week. That was refreshing. That was wonderful and God's grace. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. That was amazing teaching, taking us in the depths of God's grace. So Greg, thanks for doing that for us. We're, we're grateful for your gift of teaching and using it to serve the body. Now, I'm not sure why, but Greg picked grace and left me with wrath. And so that's where we are tonight with our, our topic. So when I, when I offered to some of the guys that they wanted to teach, no one picked wrath for some reason. No one picked jealousy. They left me with that particular one. So if you have your hand out tonight, turn to the, the first page of it there, or the front cover of it. So this is week 19 of our study, The Attributes of God. And tonight we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, what you hear songs about on Christian radio all day long, right? God's wrath. And so I, I want to ask, when was the last time any of you heard a sermon or teaching about the wrath of God? Can, can anyone remember hearing it last time you heard a teaching on the wrath of God? We went through Romans. <laughs> anyone else remember when you... Anyone? It's not one that you typically hear, is it? Don't flip through the TV and hear the TV preachers talking about the wrath of God or hear a lot of songs on the radio. But it's not a topic that we typically run to, but yet it's part of the attributes of God. And we want to make sure we know who God is as he's revealed himself to us. To get started, I have a quote for us from A.W. Pink that hopefully will get us thinking tonight. And Pink says this. He said, It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there was no such thing. While some would not go as far as to openly admit they considered a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. I think that's an, a very true description of what, at least how a lot of believers feel about this particular attribute of God. And what we want to do tonight is to, is to think about it, not to ignore it, but to think about it and to realize it's not a blemish on God's character. It's a very good attribute of God who is himself very good. And I want us to be able to think about and talk about God's wrath without uneasiness, without all these descriptions he has of apologies or resentment or seeing it as blemishes and these things. But to realize, like you said there in that next to last line of the quote, to be able to regard it with delight. And so that's kind of my goal for us tonight, is to be able to look at this attribute we normally shy away from and be able to think about it with Delight. With that said, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 to begin thinking about this tonight. It's the Lord speaking here. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing, flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. That's the Lord speaking right there. And we get, we, there's things of God's character we like to get drawn to. God makes alive. God heals. You know, we're drawn to those, but God says, I kill. I wound. No, can, no one can deliver out of my hand. You see the judgment, the wrath of God against his enemy. So how do we think about the wrath of God? We'll turn to page two as we get started tonight. First of all, I want to contend that we need to consider God's wrath as not an attribute we need to shy away from. And I have two reasons for us why I believe we need to consider this particular attribute of God. Number one, we must see God as he's revealed himself to be, not who we want him to be. There's such a danger in American Christianity, I guess in all over the world for that matter, to want to have a God of our own imagination, 
a God who does what we want him to do. We put God in a box and he needs to act the way we want him to act in all these situations. But we don't want that. We want to follow God for who he is, not who we want him to be. He's not a God of our imagination. A.W. Pink says this, and I've not verified this for myself, but he's normally pretty trustworthy. He says, there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. He said he just went through the concordance and looked, and there's more references to God's anger, wrath, and fury than to what we're typically drawn to. And so if we neglect this part of God's character, we miss who God is. But second of all, I think we need to think about it because Scripture instructs us to consider it. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Paul knows our tendency to be drawn to one. So as we look at Romans, <coughs> he, com- he commands us, he instructs us to consider both God's kindness, his love, his gentleness, and wells, his severity. Another word for his wrath on this. And friends, this is a command of Scripture. And if we choose not to think about the severity of God, if we don't take note of it, that's a sin. Because we're disobeying what the Lord has instructed us in his word. Now with that said, we need to consider it for those two reasons. But with that, we need to consider it in light of the unity of God. All throughout this study, we've talked about the dangers of isolating one attribute and only focusing on it. You know, I doubt for many of us the attribute we get obsessed with is God's wrath. In our culture, we get obsessed with God's love, for God's grace. We don't think about God's justice much. This is, this is one that we need to consider in light of everything about God. All, God is fully all the attributes all the time. That's what we saw when we talked about the unity of God way back 18 weeks ago in week one. But particularly, as it says on your handout there, consider it in light of God's holiness, justice, as well as all of his other attributes. Friends, if we understand that God is love, that means God loves what is good and true. If we understand that God is holy, meaning he's perfect and he cannot tolerate sin, that sin, sin cannot be in his presence, we understand that God is a just God and he must punish sin. If we put all those three together, then the wrath of God just flows out of it. It makes sense. It's not something that's abnormal or odd, but if God is really loves what is good and true, and that's himself, if he's holy and he's just, and therefore the wrath of God is something that must flow as well. I love it what Matt Chandler says. He says, to discount the enormity of God's severity, as if we aren't really that bad and really deserve mostly kindness, is to discount the enormity of God's holiness. And so, friends, if we discount God's wrath, we're ultimately discounting God's justice and holiness. We're missing what God's love is really all about in the first place as well. It all goes together. So what is God's wrath? Well, generally, what is wrath? Wrath means intense anger and indignation. So just generally, if you think of wrath apart from God, it's really an intense anger. It's this, this focused anger, indignation as well. So how do we apply that to God? Well, there's three definitions, and they build to what I think is the best one of them. Start with Wayne Grudem, which we quote every week. He said, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. He intensely hates all sin. I agree with him on that, that this is God's view towards sin. His holiness requires, and he hates all sin, not just some sin. God doesn't distinguish, well, that sin's okay and that sin's awful. God hates all sin, whether it's murder or hatred. Jesus makes clear all sin is hated by God. And so it's God's feeling towards that. But I don't think Grudem's definition goes far enough, though I like where Grudem normally goes. I think he leaves something out in this because wrath is not just God's feeling towards sin. It's that, but it's much, much more. J.I. Packer starts getting us on the right track, I think. He defines God's wrath as God's resolute action in punishing sin. The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. 
And so it's God's action. So Grudem gets the feeling part of it, the emotion that God hates sin. Packer brings in the aspect that it's God's actions in dealing with that sin that he hates. And I think A.W. Pink brings it together the best. He says, The wrath of God is his eternal detestation or hatred of all unrighteousness. His eternal hatred of all unrighteousness. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. And I love that phrase. It's the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. So God's wrath is not something separate, some like random attribute over here. It's just an expression of his holiness that's being dealt with towards sin that he hates. And I want you to see that God's wrath is seen all throughout Scripture. There's no hiding of God's wrath in Scripture. There's no watering it down. There's no trying to gloss over it like we do in our culture. God clearly makes this aspect of his character known over and over and over. So turn to page 3. And once you see it, because again, we've talked about before, God does not change. Many weeks ago, the immutability, the unchangingness of God. You don't have a God of the Old Testament, a God of the New Testament. There's this misnomer today we've talked about before that God's a God of wrath in the Old Testament, a God of grace in the New Testament. No, God is unchanging. And you see his wrath and his character, his holy wrath across all of the scriptures. So let's start with the Old Testament text, just a few of them. And there's many more we could look to. Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. What is this coming from? This is when Moses is up on the mountain, and the people grow impatient, and they make the golden calf. The people fall into idolatry. They forsake the God who has delivered them, and so they make their own God of their own invention there, a God of their own following, of who they wanted to be like. They start to worship the calf. And God says, I'm going to let my wrath burn against them. It's this hatred of sin, particularly this hatred of idolatry right here. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Friends, these are some serious indictments right here. It says, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until the day until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. And those are sobering words. Again, our culture has this view of God as this grandfather just kind of brushes over sin and just wants to give you candy occasionally. No, this is a God right here who, it says he was so angry with you. This is his people. He was ready to destroy you. Similarly, you see at Deuteronomy chapter 9, <coughs> later in verse 22, you see an indictment there as well. Let's see if I can even get the names pronounced right. So, at Taborah also, and at Masa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoke the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you to Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And the indictment on that, God's wrath has been provoked because of their sin. These are serious indictments. Or 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 13. This is King Hilkiah here when he realizes how far they've forsaken the Lord and begins to call the people back. He says, Go inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. <coughs> Excuse me. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So again, if you notice the... the the sin that the nation has and God's feeling towards it, his wrath has been kindled against the people because they've forsaken doing what the word 
requires. One more out of the Old Testament. There's many more. This is from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2, 3. And as we read this, notice again there's no hiding of God's wrath. There's no watering it down. Notice the imagery that she used to describe it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And now notice the unity of God. Some other attributes come in. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Let me just pause there. You've got right there the justice of God, the patience of God, and the omnipotence, all power of God. All in that one verse. You've got three attributes right there we've already looked at. Keep going. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You want images of what God's wrath is like, that phrase, overflowing flood. It describes how God views sin and the people who turn away from it. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Here's just a handful of ones sampling from the New Testament as well. Let's go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's wrath against ungodliness and the ungodly there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetance, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. So again, you see God's wrath being directed to sin here and his response to sin. Again, wrath defined as his response to the sin that he hates. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, <coughs> if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Was in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And finally, this is Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. Now, this is a picture of Jesus. This is not the picture of Jesus you find mostly on Sunday school classroom walls and most kids' centers or churches, okay? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, picture your children's Bible with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. This is wrath, his holy wrath towards those who sin and they're against him. Let's look at some of these truths about God's wrath. What are some of the aspects? What does this mean? First of all, God's wrath is a good attribute, as all are. Like we said earlier today, there's not good attributes and bad attributes. Now, there's attributes that we kind of like to be drawn to more, but there's no bad attributes of God. These are all good because God is good. Three quotes to help us think about it. A.W. Pink again. He said, the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as it is faithfulness, power, or mercy. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. Friends, if God was not a wrathful God, if God was, that would mean he's indifferent to sin. That means he doesn't really care about sin. He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be just. And he would not be a God we want to serve because he would no longer be 
perfect. Therefore, his wrath is good because it's the good expression towards sin. Second of all, sin is hateful. So this is still under number one, second quote. Sin is hateful and is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. It is, in fact, a virtue to hate evil and to hate sin. Friends, there's nothing wrong in God to hate sin. Rather, that is a picture of perfection because sin is not right. Sin ought not to be. It is worthy of being hated. And then J.I. Packer helps explain why this is such a hard attribute for us because when we think of wrath and anger, we think of how we have wrath and anger, and God's wrath and anger is so different. Look at what Packer says. So God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among humans, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. That's a great clarification for us. We as people can have righteous anger, but my hunch is in all of our hearts, probably about 99% of our anger is unrighteous. Isn't most of our anger directed when life doesn't work the way I want life to work? Anger is directed when someone doesn't meet one of my expectations, even if I hadn't voiced it to them. My anger is when something, someone disappoints me, when things aren't working the way I want, when my name has been dishonored. And all this is self-serving for us. And we're not worthy of praise. Life is not about us. But for God to feel righteous anger is good because his anger is not about things that are wrong. It's about what is good and right in that. So God's wrath is a good attribute. Second of all, God's wrath is, and I put the word, I didn't put it there on the handout, but I'd add the word always, is always related to judgment and justice. Again, doesn't, God doesn't have anger like us, it's self-indulgent, it's irritable. God doesn't wake up in a bad mood one day. And it's like, I'm tired of people, you know, and strike him down. Not like he's got a good mood. Well, I'm merciful today. Oh, it's okay. We, we don't, like we said before, we don't have to wake up in the mornings wondering what mood God is in. God is unchanging, and that should make us thankful and hopeful. Whereas we can have bad days and be a little bit more angry and irritable, that is not God, when God shows wrath, it is always related to judgment and justice. Like it says there on number two, God's wrath is only given to those who deserve it. We sometimes let our wrath go on people who don't deserve it. God never does that. Now, there's a sobering point of this in the scripture only, Romans 3, 23. How many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Yeah, so how many of us deserve God's wrath? All of us. So there's a sobering part of that. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 tells us, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. So God's wrath is not arbitrary, is not moody. It is directed against particular sins and people who sin against him, who have hard and impenitent hearts. It's righteous. It's an expression of his righteous judgment. Therefore, it's good, it's holy it's right. Number three, then, God's wrath includes both present and future realities. I mean, think about this for a minute. As we're working through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. We think about eternal life. We've been stressing from the Gospel of John that eternal life has future dimensions. Obviously, we'll be in heaven one day as followers of Christ. But eternal life begins now. We're abiding in Christ now. We have eternal life now. Well, the same is true of wrath and judgment as well. There's a present and a future reality. Some theologians like to call it the now and the not yet. We have it now, but there's still more to come that we've yet to experience. This is, we can experience a taste of eternal life now. We don't have it fully because a lot more is coming than we have now. There's people, people who don't know God are under his wrath now, but there's a greater wrath coming. So here on your handout, number three, first of all, under number three, it says people not reconciled to God are already under his wrath now. 
John 3, again, we've been looking at John, so this is no surprise. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see the life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The person who is not following Christ, the person who does not believe in the Lord, who is not reconciled to God, wrath is coming, but it's not just a future thing. It's now. They are remaining. The wrath of God is remaining on them. They are already under God's wrath. In fact, the Scripture talks about we're born that way. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Is revealed as present tense in the Greek. That means it's a constant disclosing, a constant revealing. For the wrath of God is, you could translate it, the wrath of God is constantly being revealed from heaven. It's a present reality for all those apart from Christ. Though they may not understand, may not know it, they are already under his wrath. And apart from Christ, before we were in Christ, we were as well. That doesn't negate the fact there's a future greater experience of that, so they're on your handout, but those people still will experience future judgment and future wrath. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Storing up is coming in the future. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So as terrifying as for people to be under God's wrath now, it's even more terrifying because the day is coming when there's a greater wrath. The wrath they store up from their whole lives of rejecting God and shaking their fist in the face of God and living for themselves, they're storing up wrath that will come in a future judgment. Or the book of Revelation here, chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Again, this is a picture of what is going to happen when Christ comes back. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, follow us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Again, notice it's the wrath of the Lamb. This idea that God the Father is wrath in the Old Testament, God the Jesus, and, and God who is Jesus' Son is gentle in the New Testament is a, is, a, is a misnomer here because here you have the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is showing wrath in the final judgment here. Turn the page. Number four, as we put all this together here, God is slow to execute his wrath. Again, put all the attributes together. Remember the patience of God. Now, I didn't put it in your handout, but to refresh our memory from weeks ago, God's patience is the power of control which God exercises over himself, enabling him to bear with the wicked and forbear in punishing them. The patience of God causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. So God's wrath is real, but God doesn't just, every time someone sins, I just strike him down with his wrath. He's a patient God to give people time to repent. Look at Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Or Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, God restrains his wrath to give people opportunities to repent. Number five, God relents from his wrath when people do repent. And God's patience when people do repent, God then relents from his wrath. Now, just a minute here, if you think back, when we talked about the unity, or sorry, the unchangeableness of God. We wrestled a little bit many weeks ago when we dealt with the fact that God is immutable, God doesn't change. But well, what about when he says, I'm going to destroy this nation? The nation repents, and all of a sudden, God, it says God changed his mind. Remember, think back to when we talked about that. We said in all the promises of destruction, all the promises of judgment, there is a conditional promise Imply there, though it's not stated. There's some text in Scripture that indicate it. And that is, I'm going to destroy you, but implying that is unless you repent, and then I will 
not carry out my wrath if you do repent. And that's, in fact, what we see going on in these texts throughout Scripture. God relents from his wrath when people repent. Why? Because, well, if he forgives their sin, there's no more wrath, there's no more sin there to have his wrath displayed to. Psalm chapter 72, verses 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation sometimes. Uh-huh. How often does God feel indignation? Ooh, now there you go. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Is that the picture of God that we typically hear in our songs on the radio and we've talked about? But this is God as he's chosen to reveal himself. He is a righteous God. He feels wrath every day because he doesn't change. And his name is being belittled every day. He's being sinned against every day. And his holiness requires this expression of wrath in this. But the key word in here is if. It's that if a man does not repent, then God does these things. But implied in that is the opposite. If a man repents then God puts up his sword, he puts up his bow, he doesn't prepare his deadly weapons, and he puts up his fiery shafts of his arrows. God will relent when people repent. Again, because if he forgives their sins, there's nothing for him to show wrath towards. Jonah, I think, is one of the key texts when I started looking at God's wrath that came to mind on this. Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Sorry, but Jonah began to go into the city. This is Nineveh, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, called for a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now pause there. Again, this is that conditional promise of the conditions not stated. God said he's going to destroy the city. Well, he doesn't. Why? Because they repent. They hear the message, and they repent of their sin. They repent of their wickedness in this. And so God then relents from his wrath because the sin is forgiven. Now, obviously, this displeases Jonah. Pick back up there in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 after the dots. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Talk about a complaint. He's ticked off that God was merciful and gracious in this because he knows the character of God. When people are confronted with their sin and they repent, God relents from his wrath. At this point, Jonah was one of those who wanted God to get even with the people. He didn't like them, and he was ready for them to get what they deserved. He wanted judgment for them. And so that's why he ran from going to Nineveh. Not because he was scared of the people, because he knew God's nature to, re- to relent of wrath when he forgives sin. And he didn't want that to happen to these people he didn't like. And so he gets mad that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, his wrath. You see that also in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Notice how Paul puts this together in talking to people at Thessalonica. These people, he encouraged them, they have turned from idols. When they were worshiping idols, they were under the wrath of God. Already, there was current wrath and future wrath coming as well. But they turned from that. They now serve the living and true God. This is everything we've seen in John. This is what true belief looks like. It changed them on this. They're now waiting for Jesus to come back. And so Paul can tell them this Jesus has rescued from the wrath to come. You don't have to fear judgment anymore because your penalty has been paid. And that leads us as believers to, I think, the greatest hope in all this, and that's number six. In Christ, 
we do not have to fear God's wrath. Jesus bore it for us. Friends, remember the attribute of God's holiness. God's holiness means he cannot overlook sin. We talked about several times here that quote that kind of can be a little bit disturbing. God never forgives sin. He only forgives sinners. God never forgives sin. He can't. He's holy. He's just. But he can forgive sinners. How can he forgive sinners? Not by ignoring the sin, not by forgiving the sin, but rather taking the sin, putting it on Christ, and Christ now bears the wrath of God. God's wrath has to be expressed. His justice, His holiness requires it. And either we, as His people, deserving of it, bear it, or Christ bears it on our behalf. So there's no forgiving of sins. Every one of our sins, as believers in Christ, wasn't forgiven by God. He forgave us. He put those sins on Christ. And Christ felt the wrath of a holy God what we should have felt in this. Sin has to be punished. Thankfully, Jesus bore it for us. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Friends, in Christ now, we have been justified. We've been made right because of his blood. His blood had to be shed. The wrath of God had to be poured out on him. The penalty had to be paid so that we can be reconciled to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, reminds us of our state apart from Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Friends, Before we were in Christ, we were children of wrath, like everyone else on the planet. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I don't think there's more astounding words anywhere uttered in human history than that right there. We were children of wrath, and God in his love has saved us. He's rescued us. By grace we have been saved. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You notice that word, encourage one another, by reminding each other that God has not destined us for wrath. If we don't talk about this, we fail to encourage each other the way that Scripture instructs us to do so. Now, I just want to remind us that for us to be forgiven of our sins, or to have our sins forgiven and placed on Christ, for us to be delivered from God's wrath is free for us, but it's not free. And you know this, we all know this, but this bears repeating for us to remind ourselves of this, that our salvation came at an incredibly high cost. Romans chapter 3, 23 through 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, some, some translations say an atoning sacrifice, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just let that phrase sink in. God is just and the justifier. Justify, that means he's declared us righteous. Not because of us, because of what Christ has done for us. So God's justice is in no way compromised. He has poured out his wrath against sin. It's just Christ has taken it instead of us. So God's justice, his holiness, is in no way compromised, yet he can justify us without compromising his justice. And to remind us of what that cost Jesus, 
Matthew 27, 45 to 46. This is the picture of God's wrath being poured out on him. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, for trillion upon trillion upon trillion of years, and even before there was time. So we thought about the fact that God was outside of time. Remember that one where our minds hurt so much? The perfect relationship they have always had. For the first time ever, the Father looks away. Darkness comes over the land. There's judgment coming out, and it's being poured out on Jesus. And Lord Jesus exclaims, why have you forsaken me? Because the wrath of God has been poured out upon him, the wrath that we deserve. Well, in light of that, we have to ask the question, is the wrath a communicable attribute? Because this is, you know, we talked about there's two categories of attributes, incommunicable attributes that God does not share with us, and communicable attributes that God shares with us in part. Every theologian classifies wrath as a communicable attribute. Well, how so? How does that work? Well, first of all, wrath in our typical experience is sinful for us. Not always, but typically. Therefore, in Ephesians chapter 4, 31 to 32, we're instructed this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how is this communicable if we're being told to put wrath away from us? Well, remember, for us, most of the time, our wrath it comes out of our selfishness. It comes out of us wanting our way, us being upset with unmet expectations from other people. So wrath is typically simple for us. Now, it doesn't have to be, but normally it is. I believe then there's two ways this is a communicable attribute. First of all, we can feel righteous anger towards evil, towards injustice, and towards sin in the world. Friends, when you hear some of the atrocities that happen in the world, of believers being executed in other parts of the world, or or atrocities are even happening here near us, and you feel in you a holy anger against innocent suffering, that's of God. That's a godly expression of, of wrath. You're feeling wrath. You're feeling holy anger because you watch innocent people around you suffering. That's an appropriate expression of that. Here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, this is a description of Jesus, not about, not about us, but about Jesus. But here Jesus becomes a model for us of what we can love and how we can have this as a communicable attribute. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of Jesus, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Friends, we can be like Christ in this. When we can experience, we can, wrath can be communicable to us because we can love righteousness and hate wickedness. We can, we can feel like holy hatred when innocent suffering. When you hear of children being abused or neglected, when you hear of tragedies across the world, whatever it is, we can feel righteous anger towards these things when others are suffering. But the second of all, friends, we can support God-given authority and government and strive for justice for the oppressed. When we see injustice, God's not given us the authority to go take care of justice in our own hands. That's what God has established governments for. And thankfully, we live in a place to where the government strives to have justice for the oppressed, though they get it wrong, at least we're in a place to where they don't as best as we know, it intentionally oppress the, um, the innocent here. Romans chapter 3, 13, verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. That's not the way we typically think of government, is it? God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So who has God established to be the avenger, to be the instrument of wrath against those who oppress the innocent? 
the governing authorities. And so we can properly express God's wrath when we feel holy indignation, anger against any type of injustice, when we see racism, when we see innocent being hurt, when we see children neglected, when we see Christians and other parts being persecuted. We can feel a holy indignation. That's good. We can pray for them. But then we support the government as the government seeks to be God's agent to pour out God's wrath on the wrongdoer and seek for justice. I have a friend who years ago decided he wanted to get into the police force because he was so broken over all the women being pushed into human trafficking, into prostitution, into forced pornography and all that stuff. And he was broken over all that. Well, he can't go in there with a gun and just start shooting anyone who does that. So what do you do? He goes into law enforcement. And he pursues a career in law enforcement and positions himself to begin to move up. And he's just changed cities to another city where he's beginning to get training with the FBI. And his long-term dream is to become an officer with the FBI to try to do all he can to protect the innocent. That's a proper expression of God's wrath. He feels anger against these innocent girls being abducted, taken away, trafficked to feed the sexual indulgences of our nation. And he wants to do something about it. So therefore, he supports government. He himself gets into that role to protect innocent. That is, to me, a keen example of what wrath can look like as a communicable attribute. Now, last of all, how should God's wrath affect us? Again, this is not the attribute we normally think about, so just briefly, how can it affect us? How can it change us? Number one, God's wrath should lead us to worship. Probably not the first place most of us go, right? I need to worship God. I'm going to think about wrath today, but it should lead us to the worship of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We can think about the wrath of God and God's justice and all this, and we can be grateful that he spared us from that. He's given us his kingdom, and therefore we can return to him acceptable worship. Matt Chandler, in his book, The Explicit Gospel, which is out in the hall, says we have to feel the weight of God's severity, because without feeling the weight of his severity, we won't know the weight of his kindness. And we won't be able to worship him and him alone. Worship of him is why we were created. Friends, if we want to really worship God, we must understand the, the, his severity and what he's rescued us from. So it should lead us to worship. Number two, it should lead us to seek his grace to walk in holiness. If this is how God feels towards sin, this should be a motivating factor in our lives to kill sin by his grace in our lives. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Can't be more clear than that, can it? And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves <coughs> with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, Think about Christ's sacrifice that ransomed us, that rescued us, and let that motivate us to be holy as he is holy. Again, to quote Pink, the wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to frequently meditate. First, that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's detestation of sin. He's saying our hearts should be impressed by God's hatred of sin. We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realize its heinousness. Think about that for a minute. Isn't it true in our own hearts how much we gloss over sin? How much we kind of brush off, it's not that bad, it's just a thought or it's just an attitude. But God hates sin so much there's wrath poured out on it. And that should make us understand how he views sin. Number three, 
So we think about the wrath of God, it should give us hope when we suffer due to injustice. Friends, there's a lot of injustice in the world, and when someone sins against us and it seems like they've gotten away with it, the wrath of God is an attribute that reminds us no one's going to get away with their sins. One day all wrongs will be made right. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5, written to believers who are suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Friends, this is specifically writing when believers are going to face persecution in the last days, but it's true of any persecution believers face. When we face sufferings because of the sins of other people, they're not going to get away with it. They may get away with it for a season in this life, but those wrongs are going to be made right. They will pay for their sins. So it gives us hope in the sufferings. Again, it doesn't mean that God's going to inflict justice on them now, but there will come a day when this will happen. So the wrath of God should, make us, should lead us to worship, should lead us to holiness, should lead us to have hope when we're unjustly afflicted. But finally, number four, it should lead us to share Christ with non-believers. This is evangelism, the sharing of the good news and friends, this is me right here in the bold, but this is, this is my heart on this. We should not speak of the wrath of God against unbelievers and the reality of hell without heaviness in our hearts and a desire to see others delivered from God's wrath to become his worshipers. Friends, if we really understand the wrath of God and we have family member and friends who do not know Christ, how can we sit by passively and uncaring about their eternal state, knowing what is they're already under and knowing what is to come. Second Peter chapter 3, again, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. God has given them time, but the time will run out one day. And if we're in their lives now, friends, that's not an accident. That's a sovereign hand of God. He's put us there to be his mouthpiece in their lives, which is very true in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. This is, to me, is one of my favorite texts on how on our calling as believers to share Christ with others. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, <coughs> God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Friends, if God has put people in our life who do not know him, he's put us there for a reason. And we'd be found faithful to warn them and point them to the only hope of escaping the wrath to come. So with that said, here's what I want us to talk about in our discussion groups tonight. First of all, we've seen many texts that tell us about God's wrath. I, I picked the texts that use the word wrath, but there's a lot of texts that don't use the word wrath, but you see God's wrath in it. So what are some other accounts in the Bible where you see God's wrath displayed? So, you know, we already look, looked at the golden calf and God's wrath towards his people, but what are some other examples you can think of in Scripture to where you see God's wrath against sin? Second of all, review the quote on the first page. That's a long quote from A.W. Pink. Why are we not prone to think about God's wrath? What is it that makes us something that we never hear taught, that we don't even meditate on a whole lot? Why do we avoid it, basically? Number three, 
and I used a key word here, should we love the fact that God is a God of wrath who hates sin? I want to hear all your answers to that one. Should we love the fact that God is a God of wrath who hates sin? Number four, how should God's wrath help us fight sin in our lives? We mentioned it briefly, but what connection does thinking about this have to help us in holiness? Number five, how can thinking about God's wrath enhance our worship of God? And then number six, God's wrath is a communicable attribute. In what ways is it wrong for us to imitate his wrath? And in what ways is it right for us to imitate his wrath? And then lastly, I'm really curious in this. Do you know any songs that mention God's wrath? I'm drawing a blank. I want to see if you guys come up with anything in your, in your group. So the room's set up a little bit different tonight. So Dave is already back there, so we'll circle up with Dave. In fact, y'all can sit at the end of one of the tables if you want to over there, Dave. You get some table spot tonight. Um, Greg, why don't you get a group going on the corner of this table over here? So we got Dave there, Greg there. Uh, Steve, I already see you back in the back corner back there. We'll do a group back there, and then I'll do a group up front up here. So I think we should be good with four groups. So yeah, Dave over there, Greg right here, Steve in the back, and I'll be up front here in the front right. And look forward to hearing about your discussions. <laughs>